that well. Your name is Bruce Banner. You've had a terrible accident. I can help you understand. What happened to you last night? It's been inside. I had the most vivid dream. It was like being born, coming up for air, a light hitting my face, screaming. My heartbeat was like boom, boom. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. How many of you are having fun with the superhero study? Children, you are released. Come on, you can give the Lord a hand tonight. If you've been to Walmart recently and you saw this incredible Hulk that's, uh, that that's been at Walmart, it's no longer there. That is Walmart's. Uh, I'm not sure how we got it, but we got it. And I'm sure they're going to want it back sooner or later, but we're going to leave it there for you tonight. And I know what some of you are thinking, what in the world is going on? Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Title of my message tonight, and I don't know if I'm going to preach or teach or do a little bit of both, but we'll probably do a little bit of both. Title of my message is tonight, The Horror of the Hulk, Dealing with the Two of Me, or if you like this title, Ah, the Green of It All. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. How many are ready to hear about the Lord tonight and about yourself and about what he wants from us tonight? Romans 7 verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am no good. Ooh. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word tonight. And I pray, Lord God, against any condemnation that comes from ourselves. And I pray tonight, Lord God, that we would understand exactly what we're doing here tonight. Exactly what we're doing on the planet in our lives and exactly what's going on inside of our spirits, Lord God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you give us an insight like we've never had before. And Lord, I thank you tonight that we can take something in our world, Lord God, something that has been created, and we can realize that that creation, Lord God, is touching on something, on a subject that is indicative to every single human being on this planet, Lord. Let us see the connections tonight, Lord God. Touch us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. He's called the Incredible Hulk, and before I give you his history, let me tell you just how incredible he's been if you're talking about numbers and money. Last week, the movie, the Incredible, how many of you saw the movie? Raise your hand. How many have not seen the movie? Oh, good. Save your money. Last week, the movie grossed $8.277 million, 
Uh, so far in its history of just a few weeks, it's about $117 million. With its uh, top, it's, to, it's predicted to top sales of 150 to 200 million dollars. Not to mention the sales of toys and games and all kinds of paraphernalia like this. You know what? Let me. Let's the Hulk go fight the Hulk. You ready? I've just been wanting to do this for such a long time. Hold my microphone. A little, a little I'll restrain myself or I'll get carried away. How many of you know the story about the Hulk? How many of you, know, how many of you do not know the story? I've been telling people all the time that uh, I'm not necessarily um, an expert on all of the... Stop. I'm not, a, I'm not necessarily an expert on all of the comic book heroes, although we have some experts in this church. I started this series and some of these young people, I'm telling you what, they came alive. They have books they're bringing me. They're giving me all kinds of shirts. They're bringing stuff in. I mean, it's just hit something among them. So what I've done is I've tried to study as much as I can. And basically, well, let me remind you that I'm not just studying these comic book heroes. I'm using that as a platform to see something in Scripture about us. And it's really kind of like a freewheeling thing because as I do it, God's starting to reveal some things that I never knew. And even some of the people who have been, who have been reading these comics since they were kids are starting to find some connections out that they never found out. Now, I'm I'm not asking you to be a fan of comic heroes. That's not where we're going tonight. This isn't about comic heroes or superheroes. It's about seeing something in society or in our, in our, in our genre of what's called comics and relating that to something that is of the human nature. The movies you see, the comic books you read, the novels you read, the stories you hear that have been around forever and ever or just have been created in the 20th century. Those things are indicative of the state of mankind. They come from the human psyche the human nature and so I want to bring some of that to you and then give you some insight into the parallel that may happen in Scripture. The Hulk has an interesting history created in 1962 by, you guessed it, take a guess, Stan Lee. And uh, I've never heard that name really. I knew it a little bit. I heard it, but I didn't really know it. The other day I was informed by one of our kids that uh, one of our young people that Stan Lee also has been directing. We knew that he was directing these movies that have been coming out, The Hulk and Spider-Man. He's been actually not directing, but he's been, a, uh, he's been one of the major consultants. And he's been appearing in them. If you saw The Hulk, Stan Lee came out with Lou Ferrino from the, um, from the police station. If you know who Lou Ferrino was, he was the Incredible Hulk on the TV series. In Spider-Man, Stan Lee made an appearance. He, makes, he made an appearance in a lot of these movies that have been coming out, like a cameo, and he just comes in and people don't even recognize he's there. He is very, very powerful when it comes to the history of, of uh, comics. He is a Jewish boy that grew up in, in New, New York, and from his mind, there has been an awful lot of superheroes. We'll tell you how many in a moment. 
Uh, he is also, in researching these superheroes, some interesting things came about. Not only the fact that there's a Jewish connection to almost all of them, that the writers, whether it's Stan Lee or Jack Kirby or some other young boys from Chicago, there's a lot of Jewishness that has to come out and has come out. A lot of mindset about this Messiah, this superhero complex. In researching these superheroes, some other interesting things have come out. Besides their strong Jewish connection on most of their creations, this is also evidence, and I've been studying, and I recently came up with this, and I found out that that's exactly what they call it. It seems that the comic book heroes have some eras, some times when they really kind of hit the market when all these superheroes were created. And not all the time. They're not being created every day. There's eras in the history of America that has a number of superheroes created, then none are created, then another era comes in. Matter of fact, I found out it's almost like ages, like the dinosaurs or like fossils. There's what's called the golden age, and I knew it and I just found out by reading it. There's what's called the golden age of comic book heroes. It ran from the 1930s to the 1945 around the uh, World War II, and we've been telling you a little bit about that. It belonged to superheroes such as Batman, Superman, and Captain America, and just a few others. And uh, I want you to see some of these. These are are all within that year, those eras of 1930s to 1945. And uh, they're all created in that same time slot. Uh, Superman is, and Batman and Captain America, just a few others are there. And we see these superheroes and they're bigger than life superheroes, the golden age of comics. You'll start to be an aficionado of comics. The golden age of comics. And they have something in common. These superheroes of the golden age were almost perfect beings. They could do no wrong. They were kind of like saviors of mankind, uh, like a messiah type of thing. They weren't evil at all. Uh, they could do no wrong. They had some tremendous qualities and they were fighting. They had to be perfect, by the way, to fight their arch enemies, which were gangsters and Nazis. So in the 1930s to 1945, in the golden age of comics, we see these superheroes come about and they're fighting some, some evil forces that are on our planet. Planet, uh, really on our planet. The Nazis, Hitler, gangsters of the 30s, they are their arch enemies. I also found that comics were simple back then. They were in color, but the plots were very black and white. Uh, they were in color, but the plots were about good and evil. Uh, if you pick up a comic today, you're going to get lost because they're not anything like the old comics. They're very, very, sometimes they can be very confusing, and I'll tell you why in a moment. You're going to see some neat things tonight. Then there was what's called, after this golden age, this was called the Silver Age, which began in the 1950s and, the, and really the late 1950s, the early 1960s. It seems that the, uh, the creative ability of the people to bring out comics and comic superheroes happened in the 30s and 40s, and then they stopped. For some strange reason, there were no superheroes, or very few, from the late 40s, middle 40s, to around the late 50s, the early 60s. And then all of a sudden, at the, eight, at the early 60s, and from the early 60s to the late 60s, by the way, there was another, there was another surge on superheroes. It's called the Silver Age. It began at the late 50s. And there were literally hundreds of superheroes created. Today, there's hundreds of thousands of back issues on comic books. They're gaining popularity not only in price, but they're gaining popularity as collectors are going for them. And there's, over, there's several hundreds of superheroes. Let me give you this fact. 90% of the hundreds of superheroes were created by Jack Kirby or Stan Lee. Over 90%. 
They almost have this market on superheroes. I found also that the Silver Age of superheroes were different than the Golden Age of superheroes. In the Golden Age, they fought these big, they, they fought these big world threats like Nazism and Hitler and, and the gangsters. But they changed in the 1960s. In the 1960s, they were no longer fighting the external. They were fighting the internal. Their fight really became one of their own. It was a personal thing. They always, they changed. They no longer fought just the outside forces and they were far from perfect. These superheroes had lots of flaws in the 60s. How many are with me? As a matter of fact, they fought usually their own inner selves. Now, it's pretty interesting to me because I did a little research just spiritually, historically, and I wanted to make some connections and I found some. And why would they just fight themselves and not the big terror outside? Well, because war and, uh, and world threat really wasn't there. There were skirmishes and there were thoughts of it, but there was more of a turning on of individuals in the 1960s. Uh, the gangsters were gone, Hitler was gone, the Nazis were gone, and people were experimenting with new rules, new morals, new inner feelings that had no restraints. The superheroes of the 50s and 60s, late 50s and early and 60s, is really a look at society with all of the individual problems that they battle. In the 60s, late 50s and early 60s and mid 60s and late 60s, people started to go inside themselves and it became a world of experiencing things. I know because I lived through the latter part of the 60s. It's really a look at society with all of the individual problems. Matter of fact, from the summer of 1961 through the fall of 1964, just 30 months, were created the Fantastic Four, the Amazing Spider-Man, Mighty Thor, X-Men, the Avengers, Iron Man, Ant-Man, Sergeant Fury, Daredevil, and the Incredible Hulk. It was a time of just almost unbelievable creation of superheroes. And then it stopped, as, as prolific as it was, it stopped. So when I was studying this, I thought, well, what's the connection here? And of course there is one. The superheroes of the 50s and 60s is really a look at society and all of the things we opened ourselves up to. The Hulk, let me show you his first printed comic and look who he's fighting. The Incredible Hulk, listen to what it says. The, the strangest man of all time, no he's a man. Is he man or monster? Or is he both? Fantasy as you like it, The Incredible Hulk. Not a Batman, not a Superman, just someone different. Now why would this come out? Well, I believe creators are going to create based on their society and based on the things that are coming around. That's one of the reasons why I told you that Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were probably creating superheroes based on their understanding of their Old Testament. Even though they don't come out and say that, and even though they're not spiritually religious, uh, they have overtones in Superman and in Batman and in Captain America that shows this Messiah complex. Well, it's something else that's happening in the 60s because there's no real big evil out there to fight. The real evil we're starting to see is inside us. Now watch. Here's where some of the words that you would hear if you lived in, in the 60s, new words. Cable television was a brand new word. Counterculture was a brand new word. Crib death. Doofus. Somebody was a jerk, you called him a doofus. Genetic code. Hippie. Instant replay. Jet lag. Macrobiotics. Megabyte. Um, pantsuit. Peacenik. This one is sitcom. Sexism. Space shuttle. And trendy. That was the sign. And I can't tell you how many, how many clothes I had that had that on, sewn on it somewhere. The Fab Four hit, 
changing all kinds of ideas of who we were and the blurring the lines between women and men with long hair. Can you imagine men with long hair? They were singing in high-pitched voices and they were, they were men with long hair and they were singing songs that had a, had a real rocky beat. And let me tell you something, you, every pastor from one side of the country to the next were talking about going to hell if you listen to it. Now they play it in malls. And I hear pastors humming it. Come on. Then we had these four. Who are they? Somebody tell me who these four are. The original Milli Vanilli. They didn't play any of their own instruments. None of them knew how to play, play an instrument. They were, they, were actually a, they were actually something that was formulated by Hollywood. They were something formulated just to get the people involved in it and the kids went hook, line, and sinker for it. They didn't play any one of their instruments. If you want to know anything about their popularity, um, Mickey, Mickey, how many of you know who this, who's this? Davy Jones, you saw him today. He looks nothing like that. Mickey Dolans, Peter York, Michael Nesmith. You want to look at Michael Nesmith because every time you wear, every time you use a bottle of whiteout, you are helping his mother who invented it. She is a billionaire. She invented whiteout. Just a little bit of trivia for you. The Hulk is a byproduct of the turbulent 60s of LSD. This is lysergic acid diethylamide. This is the form that, and I'm going to give you a little of my testimony tonight. That's the form I used to take it in. That and stamps and sugar cubes, which I'll show you. LSD. Actually, it was LSD 25 that I used to take because it was the strongest right, now, right then. It stopped being that strong in 1974. In 1974, there were so many deaths up to 1974 from LSD-25 because a trip can last anywhere from 12 to 30 hours. There were so many deaths from taking the LSD-25 that they dropped it to LSD-10, which is uh, different megagrams. Mega, mega and uh, it's un unpredictable effects. Even in the 60 users today, they're suffering from paranoia, schizophrenia, severe mental illness, and no, I'm not suffering from it. Thanks for asking. Not to mention auditory, visual, and reoccurring somasensory hallucinations, heart disease, arterial, artery damage, muscle spasms, and lasting anxiety, LSD. Today, and back then, it was put on stamps. This is called a matrix. And if you bought it, it's illegal. It's a chemical put on the back of the stamp. They would have 60 stamps, a peace symbol. They'd have flower power. There'd be a whole bunch of stuff. And if you tore off one of these stamps and you licked it, you were gone from 12 to 30 hours. Today, Russia loves LSD. The drug culture of the West has hit Russia. And here's the way their stamps are coming out. Look what they look like. Happy face. Batman, Bart Simpson, can you believe it? And whatever else they have there, that's LSD today. It's, um, it's in Russia, it's very, very prevalent. If you know anything about LSD and anything about marijuana and the flower children and hippies, and most of all, it was all involved in finding the inner you. Timothy Leary, a professor at Harvard, who also did a stint, by the way, at University of Alabama, invented LSD, he dropped out of society and he started a counterculture in the hippie movement, which he said, tune in, turn on, and drop out. His desire was to get every kid that they could out of the mainstay of our society to rebel and to just get high all the time and live in a utopia. Those kids today are running our government. Now, those are kids that have been trained how to back out when things get tough. 
Listen to me. He was creating a culture. The effects of LSD are mental and psychoactive. Uh, they hurt people even today. Teenagers everywhere were discovering their inner natures through chemicals, usually hallucinogenic chemicals, and getting in touch with their real selves or trying to at least. Nothing is new under the sun. Somebody say amen. Teenagers are always experimenting because teenagers are probably some of the, and please teenagers, listen to me, you're the, you're the exceptions, but most teenagers are probably some of the dumbest people on the planet. Why are they dumb? Because they don't listen to history and they don't listen to wisdom and they say, we're going to try it ourselves. It's our turn now. And they become the next fatalities of another generation that the enemy wants to gobble up. Come on, somebody say amen. Getting in touch with your really self, experiencing life, finding out life for yourself. In 1940, we couldn't even spell paranoia. By 1969, people were getting treated for teenagers. Paranoia was a, was a result, anxiety was a result of increased drug use. It still is, especially hallucinogens. And the Hulk was a perfect result of the confusion of the times. Now, I know what you're thinking. Man, I read the Hulk and I didn't get LSD out of it. Well, just listen. He's a modern Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the 20th century form. He is this type of image, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. By the way, he also changed with a chemical and changed from one nature to another nature. Now, before this night is over, you're going to see a couple things about yourself and about me and about everybody else. Let me tell you a little bit of this. Follow the storyline of the original Hulk, not the movie just now, although it had some of it in. If you follow the storyline in the comments, you're going to find out that if you, as you read about him from 1962 on, he had the army chasing him, he had the police on his tail, he had TV networks reporting his whereabouts, the Russians were anxious to crack his secrets, the Red Chinese were slapping mind-controlling devices and remotes on his neck, and even freelance villains from the center of the earth and outer space were trying to, to, uh, to uh, sway him to their side. Sounds like a bad LSD trip. Talk about paranoia. The Hulk was being sought after by everyone. Now watch, he's green because race and color was an issue in the 1960s. What are you going to do with a green superhero? He was, it's a, it's a statement. Stan Lee has a biting, he has a very biting humor, a very biting wit. He is a satirist. Jack Kirby was making fun of a lot of things that were going on and they were putting it into a, into a superhero. He's good to some, he's evil to others because situa situational ethics is popular. You can do whatever you want, it's the whole of the law. He's big and small because large corporations ruled and the small guy was the one that they took advantage of. He's the, he's the stuff controversy is made out of. He's a perfect dual nature type of fellow. Now before I explore this character and our spiritual implication tonight, let's see if you know some facts. Does anybody know what his human name was? What was his full human name? It was Robert Bruce Banner. What's his superhero name? That's good. What was his height as Bruce Banner, as he is known? Five foot nine. And how about as the Hulk? Well, seven foot in the original comic series. If you went to the movie, probably about 25 feet. He keeps growing. What was his weight as, as uh, Bruce Banner? 125 pounds. In the, original, in the original writing, he was 1,040 pounds. Today, I don't know. That thing was big. Eye color, Bruce Banner's was brown. Superheroes, uh, the Hulk was green. I'm going to tell you why in a moment because we're going to talk about colors. You seem really excited tonight. Try, not to, try to hold back just a little bit for me, okay? Because I'm going to... Hair color, Bruce Banner was brown. 
Hair color for the uh, Hulk is green. Here's a story from the book. Here's the story from the, uh, from the comics Marvel Encyclopedia. Let me read to you just a little history of the Hulk before I start to preach to you tonight. How many are learning a little bit? All right, just hang in there with me. If you're a visitor, wow, you picked a good time to come. Bruce Banner had a tragic childhood. When he was a boy, his alcoholic father finally murdered his mother after years of beatings. Now, could you imagine Superman having a history like that? This is the 60s. Suppressing his pain and rage. And by the way, that's what was happening in the 60s. Everybody was taking pills because of all the things they were suppressing. Come on, somebody say amen. The highly withdrawn intellectual Bruce threw himself into science, which was, by the way, at the forefront in the 60s, where he felt safe from the chaos that ruled his life. A genius in the nuclear physics, Bruce went to work after college in the U.S. Defense Department nuclear research facility at Desert Base, New Mexico, under General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross. There, Bruce designed and oversaw construction of the first gamma bomb, a nuclear weapon with a high gamma radiation output. As the countdown commenced for the first detonation of the gamma bomb, teenager Rick Jones entered the testing site on a date. Bruce saw him and knew he would be killed on the blast. Heedless of his own safety, he rushed onto the grounds and shoved Rick into the proactive trench. Oh, excuse me, protective trench. Before Bruce could follow, the bomb detonated, bathing every cell of his body in high-intensity gamma radiation. Miraculously, Bruce survived the blast, but his world would never be the same. Thereafter, the radiation would cause him to transform during times of extreme stress into the dark personification of his long-suppressed rage and fury, a savage brute. The Hulk lashes out as it, as, at his tormentors with an anger unmatched by any creature on Earth and the strength of a thousand armies. And the angrier he becomes, the stronger he gets. The most powerful creature ever to walk the planet, the Hulk has ravaged cities and towns from coast to coast, smashing any object that stands in his way. When his temper tantrums subside, the Hulk is a gentle, childlike man monster who wants only to be left alone. So where is our spiritual tie-in tonight? Well, the Hulk is all over Scripture. Every place you read in Scripture, you read about the Hulk. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Would you believe me if I told you that Mo Moses was the Hulk? How many would believe me? How many know where I'm going? How many do not know where I'm going? You're going to find out. Watch. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, if you know anything about Moses, he was meek and mild, just like Bruce Banner. But Moses had this other side to him. And just like Bruce Banner wanted to protect his friend, Moses wanted to protect the children of Israel. How many are following it? And so what he does is he kills an Egyptian. This is a meek, mild-mannered guy that God's going to use. He has a great, great nature on one side, but he is a monster on the other side. Killing was not what God told Moses to do. How can a meek man kill somebody? How many are with me tonight? He's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a story about the Hulk, 2 Samuel chapter 11. By the way, Moses had a hidden anger. Did you know that? Moses had a hidden rage. When God spoke to him, when the children of Israel were rebelling, and God said, speak to the rock and let water come out, Moses beat the rock up. 
He beat it up. He had a hidden rage. He was this mild-mannered person that God was using who had this inner nature just like the Hulk, and it broke out anytime he got messed up with stress. How many are with me? How many are starting to follow this a little bit? Listen, this is the connection God gave me. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 11. By the way, David was the Hulk. King David. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the same time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and all his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening time that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And yes, she was nude. And yes, she was parading herself. And yes, she was an exhibitionist. And yes, she was trapping him. But he wanted to be trapped. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him. That's a euphemism. It means that she had sexual relationships with him. And he lay with her. It goes on to tell you that. For she was purified from her uncleanness. The reason she was washing herself on the outside, I'm going to be very graphic with you tonight so you understand the Bible's not hiding anything. The reason she's washing herself is that's what the Levitical law was. After her time of the month, she went out and washed herself. She was now pure. He knew that. He knew that now her time was over and he could have her if he wanted her physically. You with me tonight? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers sent for her. She came in unto him and he lay with her. By the way, God is not embarrassed of anything that he says to you. She was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David. He impregnated her and said, I'm with child. David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah the, to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war pro prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. Another euphemism. The word for feet and the word for, the, for a sexual union is very close in the Hebrew. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. He's bribing him. He's trying to get him to go sleep with his wife so that David doesn't have to confess to this sin. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said to Uriah, Camest not thou from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine own house? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel... And Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul livest, I will not do this thing. Listen, I told my Sunday school class today, I want to meet Uriah in heaven. Because one of my biggest heroes is Uriah. He is fighting for a cause. He says, I'm not even going to do the things that bring me normal pleasure under the law. I'm going to stay here and camp out all night, David, because my, my Lord and my, and my master and, De and Joab and all of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant, the things of God are all in trouble right now. And the enemy looks like he's coming in after it. And now how can I go and have some pleasure, have a banquet and go and have pleasure with my wife? He says, no, I'm going to stay here all night. Man, you've got to understand that a man like that, he really has a heart after God's. David is lying through his teeth. The Hulk nature of David is coming out. He has a sexual problem. The Hulk is mentioned in Judges chapter 14. I hope you're getting this. Because we're 
going through the Bible because we're going to go someplace else today. Judges 14, verse 12. Uh, let me do verse 1 and 2. And Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman of Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, go get her for me. His mom and his dad. What a jerk Samson was. He had the Spirit of God on him, the Bible says. Verse 19, and by the way, listen to me, and boy, I'm going to tread softly here. Just because somebody is used by the Spirit of God does not mean that they're not jerks other times. Are you listening to me? Look at verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them and took the spoils and gave change of garments. He was giving them a riddle, and he was playing with the Philistines. He, had a, he took a wife that was a heathen, and he tells his mother and his father, you go get her for me. Totally rebellious. I'll do what I want to do, mom and dad. Forget about the Nazarite oath. I'll do what I want to do. The Spirit of God's on me. I'll do anything I want to do. Jonah has the Hulk nature. God meets him and tells him that he needs to go to Nineveh, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah says, I'm going down and I'm going away from you, God. I want to leave the presence of God, it says. He's a prophet. A prophet outside the presence of God is like a shoe repairman without shoes. I don't want to be by God. Don't talk to me. He's a prophet. It's his job to hear God. But he says, I don't want to hear you, God, because you're telling me things I don't want to do. So the Hulk nature comes out and he bolts and he runs. Pays his own fare and he's gone. The Hulk nature is in Peter. Come on, somebody say amen. The Hulk nature is in Paul, the strongest of apostles. Somebody say amen. I'm going to prove it to you. And you know what? The Hulk nature's in us. See, you and I are the Hulk. You don't have to go to a movie to see him. Just hang around humanity. The Hulk spiritually represents the two natures living inside every one of us and the struggle for, pre for prominence going on inside of us all. The Hulk's battle wasn't with the evil external Nazis or the external gangsters. No, his inner battle, his inner rage was about him inside. It was about something going on inside him. And this isn't just about the two natures present when we get saved. It's about the two natures Paul talked about that all of us must fight daily. And tonight we're going to settle one way or the other. The internal struggle to keep our souls dead inside of us. Because we all have a Saul nature. See, Saul is really the original Hulk. Saul is messed up. He's got such a pride problem it isn't even funny. Saul's fine if you're telling him everything you want to tell him. But you tell him something he doesn't want to hear and his Hulk comes out. Know anybody like that? Hello, cathedral. It's a struggle against what I call the webbing effect of sin. And, you know, I gave this to my Sunday school class. And let me tell you something. They're getting some stuff that's pretty powerful. And they're going to see it again. But this is the webbing effect of sin. It's a two natures. It's all over Scripture, by the way. The webbing effect of sin is that pride is the mother of all sins. In 1 John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And by the way, if you're living in this world, this stuff can affect you. Somebody say amen. Pride usually leads to murder of some type and has followed by deceit. 
The three mother sins are this, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Sexual sins, lust of the flesh, David had it. It leads him to murder uh, Uriah with Bathsheba's husband. He deceives himself by lying to Nathan the prophet. Greed sins, the lust of the eyes. Judas has greed sins. He sees money more than he sees the message of Jesus. It leads him to sell out Jesus and to try to murder him. It leads him to deceit, which he deceives himself, goes out and hangs himself. Pride. Ego sins, Saul had them. It leads him to try to murder David. He deceives himself, he deceives Jonathan, and he deceives Israel, and he loses his crown. So pride is the mother's sin, and guess what? We all have some type of pride. In the summer of 1986, true story, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. 426 people went to their deaths. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled onto the icy waters below as the ships collided. News of the disaster was further darkened when the investigation into the cause of the accident revealed that it wasn't a technology problem like radar misfunction or a navigational oversight or thick fog. The cause was human pride. Believe it or not, these two ships were aware of each other and they were aware they were approaching each other dead on. But the two captains, one on one ship and one on the other ship, were old Navy buddies that had a competition between them for years. And they both warned the other one, steer off, I'm coming your way, you're in my way. Neither one of them would steer off course. And amazingly as it sounds, in 1986, 426 people went to their icy graves because two stubborn captains decided they weren't gonna play a game of deadly chicken and they killed everyone aboard, including both of themselves. Pride. Now, the fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance. Proverbs 8.13. Pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. But now, we don't have spells of pride. We're not, we're, we're really exempt. Pastor, don't pick on us. We came to church. Tell all those people that didn't come to church tonight. Um, if you're a husband and wife here tonight, would you stand up? Husband and wives. I'm just going to go around, just be honest. Don't play to the crowd tonight. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about it really hard. And be honest. Don't worry about your wife hurting you later, men. I'm going to ask one question. Here's the question I'm going to ask. Do you ever get in arguments like when you drive together? Oh, yeah. Trey. Yes. 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 No, no, loud. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you get in arguments and you're married tonight, when you drive together, I want you to sit down. You get in arguments, you drive together, sit down. Oh my. If you're suffering from a lack of telling the truth, sit down. One couple. You must not drive a lot together. You may be seated, thank you. What's my point? There's not a whole lot of couples I know who drive regularly together who don't get in arguments about driving. Do you know why? 
does anybody, I'm going to stop this for you once and for all. Do you have any idea why? It's pride. Are you dead tonight? Just tell me. I'll, I'll, I'll stop preaching if you're dead. If you're really dead and you need to be buried, I'll do the funeral service. Let me know. It's pride. You know what happens? You're in a car and you're fine. You're having a great time. One of you is driving and you're going down the road and somebody pulls out or, or, or they come up to a stop sign or you come up to a red light and that person puts on the brakes and someone's already braking on the passenger side. Or they're going, Whew. and the other one looks at it and says, what's that about? Nothing. No, what is it about? You don't like my driving? Well, you know, I don't, you know. What? You think you do any better? You know what I put up with when you're driving? Come on. The car is one of those competitive battlegrounds for a husband and a wife. Do you know what I do? Sometimes you'll see me do this. you know what I do sometimes? Sometimes I let Cheryl drive me around. Have you ever seen Cheryl? How many of you ever seen Cheryl drive me around? She'll drive me around. Doesn't help matters any she, when she drives me around, but she'll drive me around. Let me tell you what happens. Men and women have different reaction times in their eyes, in their hands, and in their feet. Totally different. And basically, I'm not going to tell you who sees what when, because I don't want to get in any fights anywhere. Basically, you see things differently. And as you see things differently, it's actually hundreds of seconds difference. But that hundreds of seconds of difference registers in your brain, and you will gasp before they even know that you're gasping. Also, when you sit someone in an opposite side of a driver's seat, their perception is different. And the amount of time it takes you to see this way, as opposed for them to see that way, is several hundredths of a second. And that will also cause a reaction that you wouldn't normally do if you were driving. Not to mention that some people are just bad drivers. <laughs> It'll happen. It's been happening ever since men and women had two donkeys strapped together. Let me ask this question. Do you, other than driving, suffer from any type of pride in your life? How many would raise your hand and say, yeah, I do? Here's our big problem. We don't want to admit anything. You know, we, we, we have a tendency to see everybody else, and we do the same thing we do in driving. Well, at least I'm not as bad as you. You know, I may have my problems, but I'm not going to admit them because you have more problems. We do the same thing spiritually. Come on, somebody say amen. And basically what happens is we suffer from this thing called pride. Now that's not the only thing I'm going to tell you about tonight. I want to tell you about a couple other things, but I want to set the stage for you so that we don't all think we're choir boys. Hello? Paul's got a big problem. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. He's talking to the Roman believers about Old Testament law. And boy, Peter says this about Paul. He says, man, he writes things that are hard to understand. Paul had a great insight, and I really want you to listen to this tonight. 
Romans 7, Paul is, taking, is talking to the Roman believers about the Old Testament law. Look at Romans chapter 7, and I'm ready to preach verses 5 and 6. And then we're going to do some heavy-duty praying tonight after we hit these altars. Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. He said, man, we were in the flesh one time. Remember, Roman believers? And I, we had motions of death. We had motions of sin. We went through all the motions of sin. Verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. He's saying, man, we're free from the law now. You know, we got some freedom in Jesus. We're no longer, we're no longer subject to death. He's saying, you know, we had 632 precepts as we were Jewish believers. We had over thousands of rules and regulations and now Jesus gave us our freedom and we don't have to follow all those little rules and regulations anymore. We're free. Now watch, he goes on to Romans 7, 7, and I believe this is what Peter really had some problems with, Romans chapter 7. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. You know when people come to you that, uh, I don't know if they come to you at all, but people have argued everything imaginable to me. Say, so, you know, why is it that we can't walk around without any clothes on and go and join nudist colonies? I said, basically, because most people make people sick. Other than that, you can't, well, God created Adam and Eve without clothes. Yeah, but then the law came. And the law showed them their sin. Before there was no law, there was no sin. There's an innocency. Sure, there's an innocency. But before there was no law, how many are with me? Before there's no law, you don't know it's sin if it's not written down, if it's not a law. Come on. If you don't know the law... You can't sin against it. You can't be guilty of what you don't know is wrong. Let me tell you, it works even in the law in driving. If you drive down the interstate or you drive down a road and a cop stops you and they tell you you've been going 15 miles over the speed limit and there's no signs posted, you're free. You can argue that all day long. They have to have signs every so many feet. And if they're not so many feet, you didn't break the law because it wasn't posted the way it should have been. You can't be guilty of the law if it's not said. How many are with me? In Romans 7, 8. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. He said, you know, once I knew the law, now I'm aware of sin. Hmm. Once I knew right from wrong, and by the way, once you know right from wrong, you're guilty when you break the law. Once the message is posted that you shouldn't do this and you do it, you're guilty. Once you hear it from Scripture and you still do it, you're guilty. You can't convince somebody of sin. They've got to be tried by the law. They've got to be tried by what they hear in Scripture. They've got to be tried by the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you to be convicted of a sin if it's not said in Scripture. You've got to go for it by your convictions. Come on, how many are with me? Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 9. For I was alive without the law once. You know what he's saying? You know, before I knew the law... I was okay. Things were all right. Nothing bothered me. But when the commandments came, sin revived and I died. He's talking about his Jewishness. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong, Paul says. But once they start teaching me about the law, the Torah, man, sin started coming back on me and I died because now I'm feeling guilty. Did you ever hear somebody say, we well, shouldn't have told me that? How many are with me tonight? How many are following this tonight? Okay, continue on with me, okay? He says, I was okay before I knew what was right and wrong, but now that I know, it's killing me. 
because I'm so messed up by my own sin and short and short-sightedness that I'm guilty because I know the law. Look at 7:11. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it slew me. I said, man, once I started to know it was wrong, then sin seemed to just come alive. And every time I knew something was wrong, man, there I was doing the wrong. Woo. Sin coupled with conviction is killing me, he says. I can't help it. This is, this is terrible. Look at Romans 7, 12, and 13. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. He's saying, well, you know, wouldn't I have been better off? Aren't you saying wouldn't you have been better off if you didn't know the law? He says, it, wouldn't it be better if the law wasn't there? Then you wouldn't be conscious of your sin. So why don't we just get rid of the law and you won't be conscious of your sin? I'm here with me. He says, God forbid that we don't have any rules and regulations. Verse 13. Was that then which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it, is might, that it might appear, appear sin, excuse me, working death in me by that which is good... That sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. He says, you know what? The law is good. I wasn't feeling I was going against God before I knew it. And now that I know it, it seems that I'm really convicted because it seems I'm going against more and more of it. So do I throw the law out because sin is raising up in me? No. But is sin, is the law hurting me because I'm sinning now? Because I, I'm getting convicted? Yes. How many understand that? The stronger of a Christian you are, the more requirements God's going to put on your life. The more you trust Him, the more you love Him, the closer you get to Him, the more He's going to fine-tune you. You see, the more you come to church, and here's the deal. Here's what Paul's saying. The more you come to church, like you're doing right now, the more you hear the gospel, and the more you read your Bible, the more you're going to get convicted of sin. So what's the answer? Don't come to church? God forbid. You're caught. You don't know it, but you're caught. You can't go back, and you have to go forward. How many are with me? So here's your big problem. You want more of God. You want more of His blessings. You want more of His, of His bounty, and you're in church. And I don't care if you're in church and just listening haphazardly. You're guilty. See, I don't care if you're a teenager here and you're thinking you're going to do your own thing when you get to be 19. Until you're 19, every message you hear, you're guilty of. Now, what do you do? Do you stop coming to church? Well, many have tried to do that, but you're still guilty. Because you're guilty of everything you've ever heard spiritually. Whoa. So now what do you do? Do you stop coming to church? Because the more you hear, the more you're going to be guilty of if you go against it. How many are with me? That's what Paul's saying. He says, no. That's not what I want to do. Now watch. What a mess he's in. My real problem with Paul is saying is my green-eyed hulkiness. My real problem, he's saying, is not the law. It's not even sin, although that's a problem. It's my changeability. It's my inner nature that keeps popping out and makes me, makes me go against the law and feel the weight of my sin. I got this Hulk living in me, and I don't know what to do. C.S. Lewis once said this, quote, No man knows how really bad he is until he really tries to be good. Ooh, I like that. No man knows how really bad he is until he really tries to be good. Listen to me. I didn't think I was very bad before I was saved. In my testimony, sometimes I'll tell that I was an alcoholic and uh, I, used, I drank all the time. When my sister got married, and I am not excited about this. 
And I don't usually tell any parts of my testimony, but there's a whole bunch of little things that really don't mean anything to me now, but just to prove a point, I'll say it. When my sister got married, I'll never forget, we were in white tuxedos with tails, and I had long hair, and um, black cummerbund, I still can remember that. I was very thin, I was about 150 pounds, and uh, came, just came back from college and had some, uh, had some problems. I was on, on uh, uh, summer of college and had some problems, and not to mention the drugs I was doing, and I got drunk at her wedding. And she had a three-tiered cake, and I fell into the cake and, and ruined the cake. And I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And I told them all to take me outside and lay me in the alley by my house. And they were all drunk, so they did it too. So they laid me in the alley, and I can still see myself in that drunken stupor. You know, it's hard to imagine myself like that, and I know it's hard for you to see me like that, but trust me, that's the way it was. And I remember myself laying in that alley just laughing for hours and hours with cars coming and beeping their horns trying to get past my prone body in the alley. Until finally the police called somebody and they came in and they took me. I have no idea what they did with me other than put me someplace. And I woke up in the usual hangover. I thought that wasn't so bad. It's the way I was. I wasn't really convicted by it. My, now watch, just listen. I know some of you may be, may be Catholic here, to, or former Catholic, or maybe still going to Catholic Church. I think it was that bad. My priest drank. I saw him get drunk with me. We would go to the festivals, and he'd have a beer and give me a beer. I'd buy a beer for all the priests. We'd go gin down, and all of us would chug a beer. We'd do depth charges together. A little shot in that bottle in that glass, and we'd just chug it on down. I didn't think I was bad. My examples were okay. I believed that they loved God, but I didn't think they were bad. I didn't think I was bad. I thought it was funny. Today, I think it's pathetic. I think it's absolutely pathetic that I did that. I think it's a shame that I was that messed up in my life that I couldn't even honor a sacred vow of someone pledging to someone else. My sister doesn't feel that way. She thought it was, she still thinks it's funny. I don't. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. The law is good, even though I know it's not, not what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to go and throw the law out. Now then, it is no more I that do, that do it, but sin that dwells in me, my hulkiness. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. I want to do the will of God. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Did anybody ever come to you and say, man, it's just too hard to, to live this life? It's too hard to be a Christian. I mess up too much. That's what Paul's saying. Let me go on. Verse 19, one more time. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. This is Paul, one of the strongest apostles. Now, if I do that which I would not, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the enemy. I love God. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, look at yourself and look at me. 
Get yourself first. That's going to be a little hard to do. Now look at me. What do you see? Look at yourself. What do you see? How do you see yourself? You think you're okay? You're not as bad as so-and-so? Oh, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. I'm okay. Well, after tonight, you're not going to be ever, ever, ever able to say that again. I'm going to kill that once and for all for you tonight, and you're going to be subject to the law tonight so that grace can abound. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? Look deep, deep inside yourself. What do you know about yourself that maybe nobody else knows? Hmm. What do you know about yourself that you've been able to hide from everybody else? What do you know about yourself that maybe not a whole lot of people have seen, but you know it? And you're not real crazy about a whole lot of people finding out about it. Are you someone who has a flaw that comes out when your buttons are pushed? Like the Hulk? Do you have a chink in your Christian armor, a habit, or something that you can't give up? Now listen, I am not your judge. I am not condemning you tonight. You've got to follow this whole message. Do you, are you a hidden Hulk? Mild-mannered on the outside. Don't push my buttons! Do you have an anger problem? You know, it's funny sometimes. It's really not funny, but I remember preaching my first church, and I remember a board member in my first church, and I remember him praising the Lord on Sunday morning. And, uh, and I remember the church was very small. The parking lot was even smaller. And I remember looking out the window after church. He was praising the Lord all during church. And I'll never forget because I was a young pastor, and he was outside, and he was screaming at his wife after church. And I thought, I don't get this. I don't get this Christianity stuff. I don't get what, you know, how could you be one way and another way? How many are with me? This is good stuff. Listen. Do you have a temper problem? Do you have a lust problem? Here's the problem with uh, the Hulk. And this is what you'll see if you ever read about it or if you ever go see the movie. The more they tried to hurt him, the bigger his anger and power grew. He was angry. And every time he got angry, his eyes would turn green, his hair would turn green, his body would grow, turn green, and he'd grow out of his shorts. But when they tried to hurt him, it would feed his anger. Every time you give in to the thing that you don't want to give in to, you feed it and it grows. Do you have a problem with gossip? Do you have a problem with envy? Are you green with envy? It's called colorgenics. It's a study scientists are doing on the effects color have on our emotions. Red is stimulating, it's aggressive, and it's exciting. There are more red cars hit on the, on the, uh, in the United States than any other color cars. If you have a red car, your insurance is slightly higher than if it was a different color because you have more probabilities of being hit because every time somebody sees red, a lot of times it, it gives them some type of rush. It actually raises blood pressure. They put people in studies, and by the way, I don't want you to raise my blood pressure, so please. But if you see red, it'll actually raise your blood pressure a couple points. Yellow is a happy color. That's why happy faces are in yellow. That's why when you go to the store, most of the cereal boxes are in yellow. They want you to be happy in the morning. It makes us feel good about life. But it can create anxiety. Too much yellow can create an anxiety. White, of course, we know is pure, powerful, overcoming, conquering. It's the color of a wedding. Blue is 
calming luxury car commercials, you watch them on TV, they will always have a really, really, really blue sky in them. Purple awakens love and kindness. Newness, it's an unrealistic color. Easter bunnies are more purple than any other color. And by the way, the Hulk wants love and he wants somebody to understand him. That's why his shorts are purple. Green arouses pride, the best, the meanest, the tallest. Did you ever hear the jolly green giant? Giants are green. That's why the Hulk is green. Black is death and sin, the dark side, secretive. So let me ask you a question tonight. If your emotions were known by one overall color, what would it be? If we were to color your emotions, what would your color be? Just think about it for a moment. If you can put a color on your emotions. Now, by the way, neutral colors are non-committal emotions. Brown, tan, beige, gray. That's kind of like a lukewarmness or really not having any emotion at all. Well, here's the truth about us. We all have a black-white nature. Paul tells us in Romans 7.20, look what he says. Now that, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. And when confronted with this black night like nature, especially in a setting like this, the church, some of us right now are turning red inside. We're getting angry that we came to church tonight and we're not hearing what we want to hear. So your emotions tonight are, why did I come here? I don't need to be screamed at. Some of you are turning a color beige or gray, and you're just switching me right off. Who cares what he says? I just can't wait till he's done. By the way, Esau and Edom means red. So you get mad at the preacher. And our hulkiness continues to be buried deep inside of us, ready to appear the next time our buttons are pushed. Do you know how many people that I've gotten angry by just preaching the Word of God? I wanted to, I, if you know me, if anyone knows me, I am not confrontational at all. Even though it may sound like I am, I am not. I can't tell you the last person I picked a fight with, even in my family. I just am not controversial. But, the, but when I preach the word with authority, people get mad at me. I push buttons. Paul's fed up with his dual nature. Look at Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What did Paul say? He's saying, I'm wretched. There's a great struggle within me between right and wrong. The struggle between sin and righteousness. Could this be us tonight? In the midst of this struggle, no, knowing sin kills and righteousness makes alive, Paul declares himself to be wretched. The word there in the Greek is poros. It means I'm miserable. What's his solution? What's he looking for? He's looking for someone to help him. We have always viewed the Apostle Paul as the strongest of all the Apostles. He withstood so valiantly all the trials and tests that life turned out to him and gave him that it seems strange to find him asking for help in this way. It must be an incredible struggle for him to need help and then to pen it for all of, for all of time. What was the, the battle? He said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He is saying, although I am living flesh and blood in front of you, I am dying on the inside. This is Paul. While I yet live, I am free to do whatever I want, but I am bound to a dead man living inside of me just under the surface. 
Now I'm going to turn you to a verse of Scripture, and we're going to close very soon, but I'm going to turn you to a verse of Scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8. This is a verse that's going to shock your Christianity right down to your Christian roots. And I'm not talking about your hair color. Ecclesiastes 8, 8. And you're not going to like this verse of Scripture, I promise you. There is no man that has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that none of us have the ability to keep the Spirit of God when He gives it to us. I know you hate when I do that, but listen, how many of you heard what I said? I need you to feed back something tonight. I want this to hit home. We cannot keep the Spirit of God inside of us. How many agree with that? How many have problems with that? Good. Because you should. But the truth is, you can't. There is no way that you or me can keep the Spirit of God in us. Let me prove it to you. 8-8, there is no man that has power over the Spirit to retain, to keep the Spirit. Neither has power in the day of death. You can't, you can't decide when you want to die. And there is no discharge in that war. You can never get a peace about it. Neither shall wickedness deliver those things that are given to it. Now listen to me closely tonight so you don't misunderstand what I'm going to tell you. And get ready for the shock of your life in another way. We have this thing that's called self-righteousness. And what happens is as we grow in God, we feel pretty good about ourselves. We stop doing drugs, we stop drinking, we stop doing this, we stop doing that, and we feel God growing in us. And we get to this point where we don't think that we have a dual nature. We get to this point where we think, you know, I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, I go to church all the time. I tithe. I'm faithful to God. And we start to think about ourselves as we ought not to think about ourselves. We start to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think about ourselves. Nothing you can do can keep the Spirit of God inside you. You know why? Because we're leakers. You know the reason why that board member was um, yelling at his wife? Because from the, from the altar to his car, he leaked out the Spirit. Somewhere around here, and I don't know where because I didn't look at it. Oh, there it is. By tomorrow morning, the Incredible Hulk is going to be a little pile of plastic. He's leaking. Here's what happens. Paul wants you to know that what's happening in his life is this. He gets fired up for God. He preaches about God. He sees miracles about God. And then another problem comes in his life. And when the next problem comes in his life, his buttons get pushed, and he finds a hole happening in his faith. And God starts to leak out. And when that button gets pushed, what happens to Paul is he's saying, you know, yesterday I had this great miracle. God, God took me through the shipwreck, sent his angels. But you know what? I'm, just when I start to feel really great about myself, another problem comes up and I start leaking again.
starts losing. How many of you ever lost it? No, no, no. How many of you have ever not acted like a Christian? Then you're agreeing with me. You can't keep the Spirit of God inside you. Can't you? Because if you can keep the Spirit of God inside you, you wouldn't lose it every now and then. How many have ever lost it on your husband? How many ever lost it on your wife? How many ever lost it on me, even though you didn't tell me? It's all right. I probably lost it on you too sometimes. Why do we leak? We're big leakers. You, we go through Sunday morning and Sunday night, and man, God just meets us. We get healed. Things happen. And then we just... How do I know that? Because some people come to be counseled for the same thing for the last 10 years. They get fired up. They know they can do it. And then they get out there in the world and the enemy shoots all kinds of things at them, starts pressing their buttons. And you start leaking again. So what's your answer? What's Paul saying? Paul saying, man, I love God. What's Ecclesiastes saying? What's the wisest man in the world saying? He says, you know what I figured out? We can't hold the Spirit of God. And you know what? He's right. We can't. That doesn't mean somebody can't hold it for us. You, on your righteousness, are not going to make it. Because you know what? You got a hulk inside you you got to kill every day. You're just not going to make it by yourself. You're going to need someone to help you. By the way, I'm so thankful that Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 were not divided in the original text. I'm so thankful that it was one letter and it had no paragraph breaks. Let me tell you what he says. He's saying, Paul wants us to know that while we are here on earth, we're going to need somebody's help to keep the Spirit of God inside us to stop, stop hemorrhaging our Christianity out there. Because our human nature is so full of holes that every time God is poured into us, He keeps leaking out. But so, surely we can't just accept that and go home, can we? I can't just tell you you're all miserable and you're all terrible and you better go home now. Goodbye. I love you. You don't want a message that says, you know what? I just told you you're no good. The pastor told you you're no good. He told you you're never going to be good. He told you you're going to leak out everything I'm going to tell you. Well, good, no, good night. You think I could tell you that? You think I'd want to tell you that? Of course not. I can't tell you. Well, you know what? It's never going to happen for you. Every time you get a powerful move of God in your life, you're going to go right back to your sin. Can I tell you that? Good night. Go home. Have a nice hoagie. Go down to Taco Bell and enjoy the rest of your week. What a miserable message that would have been. Paul doesn't want us to leak the Lord out. He doesn't want us to leak the Spirit out. Jesus doesn't want us to leak the Spirit out. The Holy Spirit surely doesn't want to leak out of us. He wants you to retain everything He's done so you grow from day to day so that your faith gets stronger and stronger. So how do we do it if we have this second dual nature inside of us? And by the way, some of us leak more than others. Some of you may have actually plugged up some of those holes that used to leak. You know, when I was first a pastor, you came up to me and, and yelled at my face. I yelled back at you. It was a big hole in my nature. God took a lot to plug that, but man, when he plugged that, I could take anybody yelling my face off. Now, I'm not asking to do that, but I can handle it now because we're able to plug that, that leak up. Look at the words in verse 25, just five words tonight. Zero in on them. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans tells us how we can do it. Now watch 725. 
says this. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That, so through the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now why would he thank God for his Hulk nature? I thank God that I serve with my mind the law of God, but I thank God that I serve the law of sin. Why is he thanking God for that? Zero and five words. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word through there is the word dia. It means a deep channel, a hidden tunnel, a cave that, bring, that br uh, brings me to the other side. Wow. What he's saying is, you know what? Even though I'm messed up sometimes, I'm going to make it. And even though I lose it sometimes, I'm still going to make it. Because he's saying through the tunnel of Jesus, Yeshua, Christ, Christos, the anointed one, our Lord, Kurios, my controller, my master, the captain of my soul, the one who stops my spiritual hemorrhaging, through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, in the tunnel of his grace, through the tunnel of his rub, through the tunnel of his keeping power, I am not going to be the way I was yesterday. I'm going to be a different person tomorrow, and I'm going to stop the leaking through Jesus Christ. I can't retain the Spirit, but the Spirit of God inside me surely can retain the Spirit, and I'm not going to be like I was yesterday because I am not walking by flesh. I am walking by the Spirit of God. There therefore is now no condemnation to those who walk not after the Spirit of flesh, but after the Spirit of God. You are not walking after your flesh. The reason why you're here tonight is not to hear how bad you are. The reason why you are here tonight is to hear how good Jesus is because we can't do it ourselves. He's got to do it for us. In Christ Jesus, look at it, Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now I'm going to close, just listen to me. You see, a 25-foot Hulk has trouble hiding himself. Your and my sin nature is not going to be able to hide itself. The Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. So you can't hide a sin nature. If you do not want to be in Jesus tonight, your sins will find you out. When the Hulk goes out on the landscape, everybody on the planet knows where he is. He can't fit in the small tunnels. Jesus said there's a narrow way. You got to die to self so you can enter into him. And when you enter into him, he covers you with his protection and retains the spirit of God in you. Now listen tonight, because there's a lot of people going to be set free tonight. In order to be in Jesus, you've got to get out of you. Romans 8.1 says, we walk. That word there is parapetos. It means to tread all around, making big circles, and get closer. I need a volunteer. Here's what it means. It means walk all around and get closer and closer and closer. It says, we are not trying, Paul says, I am not trying to get closer to my inner nature. I'm not trying to walk after the flesh. I'm not trying to do things that are, that are just, you know, I can get away with. I can do everything, he says. Everything's expedient to me. I'm not trying to get away with things and get as close to the world as I can and as close to my human nature as I can. I'm not trying to walk in the flesh. Losing a little bit of something, aren't you there, buddy? He said, I'm trying to walk in the Spirit. I'm getting closer and closer 
and closer to God. And as I get closer and closer and closer to God, he pulls my spirit to him. And I can't lose it. So he says, I'm not going to lose my salvation. I don't worry about losing my salvation is what Paul's telling you. Because I know that there's an inner man to me, but I'm not walking towards my inner man. I'm walking to my spirit man. And as I walk to my spirit man, the Holy Spirit takes my spirit and clings it to me. See, the truth is in Ecclesiastes 8.8, you can't hold your own spirit. Because if you go your own way, you're going to walk towards your flesh. But if you walk, no, I wonder why Peter had problems reading Paul. But if you walk towards the Spirit of God, you will get closer to, and the closer you get to God, the stronger the Spirit of God will be on you. And you will retain the Spirit of God, and the Hulk nature will come out of you less and less and less and less and less and less. I need messages like this. I need to know the reality of why I lose it sometimes. I'm gonna, can I be real honest with you tonight? I don't know what it was, Cheryl, the other day, but Cheryl and I, can I just give you my heart? I am madly in love with my wife. Cheryl means so much to me, it isn't even funny. And I don't get to tell this to public to people too often, but I'm gonna tell you something. Man, there is no one on this planet that could have married me and known me and been such a friend to me other than my wife. I am so madly in love with my I'm more in love with my wife now than I ever have been in my entire life. And I want you to understand, I tell her that every day. Our lives are just tremendous. I don't have, I have not problem one with Cheryl, not one. It's just tremendous. And by the way, it doesn't just happen just like that. We've been married, and this may be a problem because I don't remember how long we're married, but we've been married 27 years. Whew. I still don't have a brother. We've been married twice. And I'll tell you what, it's just, I'm excited about my life with her. I really am. And I'm not saying that to prove anything. I tell her that every day. I compliment her every day. I don't see any, I don't see any flaws in Cheryl. Love will hide everything, by the way. Even if she has any, I'm sure that there's some between her and the Lord, but I'm, I'm just really in love with her, and I don't see it. Um, if I had to do it over again, I'd marry her a million times. And you know what? The other day, here's what happens to me. Because my closeness to her, I've walked towards her and she's walked towards me. And man, Cheryl has my spirit like no one you possibly can know. She knows me inside out. And I am so close to her. I'm just going to, I just feel like this tonight. Every now and then I'll actually tell her, Cheryl, I need a hug. And she'll tell me she needs it. We know what we do when we wake up in the morning. This is, I know this is something that I shouldn't be sharing with all of you. But we know what we do when we wake up in the morning before she goes to have her prayer. Or I pray. Uh, we just point our fingers at each other. And just smile. Because we know it's going to be another day together. We wake up and I point at her. She points at me. We smile. That's the first thing that comes out. Hello, hon. How are you doing this morning? I love you. Let me tell you something. That doesn't take walking my own way to do that or her walking her own way. We got closer and closer and closer and closer. You know what happens now? Let me tell you what happens with now with Cheryl and I. The other day, I was under a whole lot of stress. This guy comes out, by the way, when you're under stress. Did you notice the Hulk? I'm going to put him real close to me just to let you know that there's a nature there sometimes. And I was doing everything imaginable. You know, somebody comes up and says to me, Hey, Pastor, can I have a minute of your time? 3,000 minutes of my time doesn't leave a whole lot for me. 
So I was under a little bit of stress. I couldn't, I couldn't juggle this. I couldn't juggle that. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. And I usually can, I usually can operate under stress pretty well. I mean, I usually, you usually can't tell. It's like the ducks on the water. Did you ever see ducks floating on the water? They look so graceful. And listen, they're paddling like mad underneath there. I promise you. And something, I don't know, something was there. And I, Cheryl said something to me, and I said something like I don't normally do. I said something very strong to her. Now, to you it may not be strong, but I said something. She could tell in my voice it wasn't, I love you. I'm glad to be with you. And boy, I'll tell you what. I felt something just leak out. And it bothered me. So I saw that Cheryl kind of, she was going to go past it, you know, just keep going. And I, uh, I looked at her and I said, honey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm, I'm messed up. I start confessing to her. And, of course, she forgave me. And I could feel something get plugged back into my spirit. It is so easy for us to lose it. It is so easy in our human natures just not to treat each other the right way, say the right thing, or do something strange, or just let the human nature come out, because we're human. But when you try, when you have to apologize when you've done it, you go against that mother's sin, which is pride. And every time you go against that mother's sin, which is pride, you plug your flesh, and you, through the Holy Spirit, because that's the only one to let you do it, will start to retain the spirit of Almighty God. So tonight, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. I don't know what we're used to getting in church, but I like real messages. I don't know about you, but I like the reality of a message. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm perfect, because I'm not. I don't want you to think that Cheryl's perfect, because she's not. As a matter of fact, it's not about me and Cheryl tonight. It's about you. So I want you to think about yourself tonight just for a moment. Who are you walking after? If I were to give you a color tonight for your life, what color would you color it? Just bow your heads for a moment. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. This is not about yelling at you or preaching some clothesline message or making you feel guilty. No, it's quite the opposite. It's about making you feel the power of the Spirit of God. Lift your eyes for a moment. Give me this back for one moment. One moment, right here in the transparency. Let me give you a little bit of, of colors. Red is impulsive, desire, passion, urge to succeed. It increases your blood pressure. I would put sexual and lustful and lewd things in that area. Gray is neutrality, uncommitted, uninvolved, escape from anxiety. That's omission sins or neglected sins, things that you know you should do but you don't. Blue is traditional, completely calm, reduces blood pressure. That's complacency and apathetic. Green, stimulus to interaction, analytical, precise, accurate, resistance to change. It's loaded with pride, envy, jealousy. Violet, magical, enchanting, unimportant, unrealistic, irresponsible, immature. That's self-righteousness, judgmental attitude. Yellow, bright, cheerful, restless, seeking change, creates anxiety. That's impatient, intolerant, 
pushy and anxious. Brown, reduces sense of vitality, passive, solid roots. Inflexible, adamant, argumentative. Black, neg negation of emotion, powerful, strong, uncontrollable, extinction, nothingness. Wild-natured, aggressive, militant, rebellious. We're all different. So what color do you want to be? Here's what I want to be. I want to be white. I don't want to be me. I want to be white. I want to retain the spirit of Almighty God. Tonight, all I want to do is pray for you tonight. So tonight, here's what I'm going to do. With your heads bowed, I want to ask you a couple questions. The Bible says, and we can't get away from it, that we have to crucify the flesh so that the resurrected life of Christ can live through us and to give us victory. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, it says it best. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, it says. Having learned this truth, Paul told the believers at Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That I do not nullify the grace of God, for if by righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Unless we are controlled by the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18, and constrained by the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.14, we are out of control and have no power to live the Christian life, even if we know what is required and we have a desire to do it. But I say, Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. People ask me all the time, how do I get closer to God? Walk closer to Him. Walk by the Spirit. Stop doing what you want to do, what your inner nature wants to do, and start doing what God wants to do. Here's what He wants you to do tonight. You know what He wanted you to do tonight? He wanted you to come to church. There's some people not here that God wanted to come to church tonight, but they walk by their own nature. I'm not trying to fit. There's some legitimate excuses, I'm sure. You followed that and you came to church. You walked by the Spirit. What does He want you to do right now? Does He want you to get out of here and go home and wonder what in the world was said? No. He wants you to take you, who you know best, and to bring you up to this altar and to say, God, take out all the color in me and give me your white nature. I want to walk closer to you. Tomorrow, I don't want to leak. I don't want to lose it on my wife or my husband or my fellow worker. I don't want to lose it because somebody gets paid more than I get paid. I don't want to lose it because I see somebody who has a bigger house than I have and I don't get it. I don't want to lose it through envy and through strife and through pride. I don't want to lose it. That's the whole thing of Christianity. Christianity is a discipline. So tonight, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you want to be closer, if this message has hit you somewhere in your life and you want more, we're just going to pray for a moment in here. I want you to get out of your seat and walk up to this altar and claim it. with them tonight. Ah, you're such a good people. Ah, but you know you need them. Ah, you love them so much, don't you? I know you do. We are blessed with a strong church. We are blessed with strong individuals who know how to get on their knees and say, God, I need you because by myself I can't do it. place and just drop to your knees wherever you are. Just let's spend a moment for him tonight.